Today's episode is sponsored by the Meriwether Council, where makers learn that gainful self-employment through craft can be a reality and how to make it happen in their own lives. Visit MeriwetherCouncil.com for more information. And now, here's the show. episode 75 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about embroidery as illustration with my guest, Sarah Benning. Sarah K. Benning is an American fiber artist with a nomadic studio practice. Originally from Baltimore, she attended the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and received her BFA in fiber and material studies in 2013. Shortly after graduating, Sarah discovered her love for embroidery, started her own business, and has never looked back. She often abandons traditional stitches and techniques in favor of bold shapes, playful patterns, and contemporary subject matter. She approaches each piece as an illustration, creating a drawing in pencil directly onto the fabric before filling the image in with thread. In this way, the thread becomes more like ink or paint than traditional needlework. And the stitches accentuate each shape that builds the composition. Sarah Benning, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. I've admired your work on Instagram for a long time, and I just think it's phenomenal. And so I'm really happy to be able to talk to you and hear more about it. So um, you are originally from Baltimore. I'm also originally from Maryland. Um, yay, Maryland. And, um, yeah, such a small world. <laughs> I know. It's kind of funny. And I went to college in Baltimore. Um, but you are now living in Maynorca, Spain. And I wondered if you could tell us what brought you to Spain. Yeah. Um, I actually came to Spain on a bit of a whim. My now fiance, and I are both English language teaching assistants. Um, so we're participating in a program that the, the Spanish government runs to bring native English speakers to schools in Spain to help with conversational English. Um, we applied to the program last spring and didn't find out until the very end of July if we were accepted or not. And it works a bit on a lottery system. So we were accepted, but still had no idea where we would be. Um, We found out right in the beginning of August, and we moved to Spain in the middle of September to start work in October. So it's been a bit of an adventure over the past year or so, kind of hoping and then planning and then rushing to Spain um, for this teaching program. And of course, At the same time, I've continued my embroidery practice and have continued to build my embroidery business and have expanded to include patterns and more and more complicated work. And it's it's been a really wonderful experience kind of starting over in a very new and different place and dealing with the challenges of foreign languages, languages actually because in Menorca they speak Catalan first and then Spanish. So I had never even heard what that sounded like before I got here. Um, But it's been a really great adventure and my time on the island is coming to an end. At the end of June, I'll be heading back to the U.S. um, where I'll be sort of settling down. 
but keeping things a little bit nomadic still. Um, and so are you working in um, elementary age classrooms or at the college level? Who are you working with to yeah. teach English? I, um, I am working in an elementary school. So my students are between 6 and 12 years old. And um, the, the education system here is actually really amazing, especially when it comes to foreign languages. The kids start learning English as a second language when they're three years old. I don't work with kids that small, but my school does have a preschool and they do have English classes. Um, so by the time they're in first grade, when I am, have been working with them, they kind of already have a lot of the basics down and we're just expanding their, vo their vocabulary and practicing pronunciation and playing games to, to sort of practice more natural English rather than just out of their textbooks. But it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, that's such a neat program. What is the name of the program? Just in case, I, I imagine there might be a few listeners who are like, wow, I'd love to do something like that. Like, how did, what is the name of the program so we can link to it? Um, yeah, so the name is called Auxiliares de Conversacion. So it translates to conversation assistance. But if you just Google the name, it's A-U-X-I-L-I-A-R-E-S-D-E-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-C-I-O-N. And the program requirements are actually very minimal. You don't have to have teaching experience. You don't have to know Spanish, though I recommend you know some, just to make living in Spain easier. Um, and I think the only requirements were that you have a college degree and, you know, that you're available for the school year and that you're willing to be placed anywhere in Spain because it is sort of a lottery system. That is so neat. Well, that that's such a cool adventure. And, um, and I think, and we'll talk about this later, but it's something that speaks to um, the flexibility of having a business that's based online, um, which allows you, and also an art business, and in your case, an art business that uses pretty humble materials. So you don't necessarily need like a painting studio or that sort of thing, like you're using basically thread and fabric. And so to be able to pick up and move um, is really a neat thing and it's something that is offered with that kind of lifestyle. Um, so that's really cool. Yeah, definitely. It's it's one of the major benefits of embroidery as a form because, like you said, it is just fabric and thread, which is pretty much available anywhere. And the materials themselves are so light and so accessible and so affordable that it's it's very easy for me to pack up and and go. <laughs> um, pretty much all the time, I have at least one work in progress in my bag. So yeah. even just waiting for the bus or or at a restaurant or pretty much anywhere I can be working. Yeah, that's really great. So let's go back a little bit um, to when you were growing up. Did you grow up in a creative household? What, what were your parents doing for work? Yeah. Um, ironically, my mom is not the most creative person. She actually is a biostatistician, so she's very math-minded, <laughs> um, kind of the complete opposite. 
but she and the rest of my family have always been incredibly supportive of my own artistic inclinations. And I did have extended family members that were professional artists and designers and architects. And I grew up in a community that really supported those kinds of things. So being an artist didn't seem like a pipe dream. It seemed like a totally achievable reality. And from a very young age, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And you went to a magnet high school in Baltimore, the Baltimore School for the Arts. What was that like? Oh, it was great. Um, It's a really fantastic school in the city of Baltimore, in the Mount Vernon neighborhood. And it's an art magnet arts magnet high school. So there's visual arts, dance, theater, and theater production, and music, both instrumental and vocal. And I was there for visual arts, and it's a really great foundation program. So half of my day was in the art studio, learning the basics of observational drawing, painting, sculpture, photography, printmaking, um, 2D and 3D design. And then the other half was a traditional high school experience, math, science, language. (laughs) Um, so it was a really great combination of academics and arts, which really, I think set the foundation for me to do what I'm doing now. Yeah. Okay. And then you went to college, um, as I said, in the introduction at the school of the art Institute of Chicago, and you actually, um, majored in fiber and material studies, but from what I read in some interviews with you, you actually didn't do embroidery at that time. So what kinds of work were you making and sort of exploring while in school, in college? Yeah. Well, part of the great thing about SAIC is that you don't have to major in the traditional way. The school is very open and interdisciplinary. So you can choose to take classes pretty much in any department. Um, I ended up focusing most of my time in the fiber and material studies department. And I was working primarily with paper and thread. So I was sewing, but not in such a traditional embroidery type of way. I was very interested in sort of lengthy processes in and of themselves. So I created a lot of large-scale paper pieces that explored the accumulations of marks and the passage of time. So I was playing a lot with pinholes and making repetitive stitches all on top of each other. And and my work was very, very different. It was very abstract and very process-based and um, not representational at all or decorative really even (laughs) so interesting and I wonder if your yourself then if you're your if yourself then could have looked at the work that you're making now which is small scale representational um you know and and sounds pretty different um what would you have thought about it (laughs) in other words um I guess some people would sort of see it as craft, although I see it as, as fine art and illustration, but, you know, it sort of crosses the line maybe. Um, so do you, what, what do you think you would have thought about it back then? Yeah, it's a funny question because I kind of think over my whole 
formal artistic life starting in high school up until now. BSA in Baltimore was very foundation, like look at the still life and draw the still life, very rigid. SAIC, on the other hand, is very open and conceptual and highly emphasizes experimentation. And so that's kind of where my work was was going. And when I left school, I kind of was completely over the contemporary conceptual art scene. Oh, okay. I, I wanted a, a break from academic thinking. I wanted a break from institutional art making. I just wanted to kind of escape from it. <laughs> and uh, I turned to embroidery, a much more traditional craft rather than art, because I was still anxious to continue making things with my hands, but I didn't really know what I wanted to make or why I was making it, what my goal was. If I wanted to pursue a gallery career as an artist or pursue art administration work or or pursue something else completely different and just continue making as a hobby. So embroidery kind of filled this gap for me while I was trying to figure it out and has very intuitively morphed into into the practice that I have now. So how did you find that embroidery? Like right after graduation when you were sort of like, okay, enough of that. I need to do something different. And while I'm waiting to find out what that different thing is, um, I'm going to embroider. So was there like a kit or a project or a book or just some materials lying around that you were sort of like, hmm, I'll try this embroidery thing. Like what was the first project? Yeah, I had... Well, I had tons of materials just from being in school. And because I had been working so much with paper and thread, I just started making greeting cards for friends and family members that were hand-stitched greeting cards. So I was sewing messages or designs into the cards and mailing them to people. Um And after hearing over and over and over again, oh my gosh, these are so fun. What a great idea. You should open an Etsy shop, put them out there, see what happens. So I did. I opened an Etsy shop the summer after I graduated, selling a very modest selection of embroidered greeting cards. And from there... Um, as I was buying more and more threads from the store, I became more interested in these other sort of embroidery materials. So I started experimenting with, with the hoop as the form and with home decor objects in addition to my stationary designs. And it's grown from there. Right. So I went back. I looked at your Etsy shop. So that was 2013 when, when you first opened. And I went back. Um, in time to see sort of the, the greeting cards from way back when. And, um, and you're right, they're really different. They're charming, but totally different from sort of what I think people who follow you on Instagram now, for example, would associate with you. Um, and then as you kind of proceed through time, getting closer and closer to today, you suddenly start to see there's a hoop and there's a hoop with like um, an embroidered succulent, and then there's another one, and then there's another one, and there, there's a different house plant, and it sort of um, so it sort of takes over. And and I think that that's interesting. You can kind of see that that progression. Um, and so first, why did you 
choose Etsy as the way to do this? Was it just because that sort of was easy or was obvious or what was, was there any thinking behind Etsy as a choice? Um, yeah, well, I, I knew what Etsy was and it was sort of just a word of mouth type of thing. Over and over again, people were suggesting that as a marketplace that might be a good idea. Um, you know, at the time the Etsy homepage was very different. So it was the changing hourly and featuring different work every hour. And I just sort of saw that as an opportunity to get exposure and, and maybe reach some potential customers. When I opened my Etsy shop though, I definitely didn't intend for it to necessarily turn into my full-time job or a career or anything. It was, it was more that I was going to be making these things anyway, and maybe other people would enjoy them. So I thought I might make them available. And as my photography improved and my, my pieces started getting into those antiquated Etsy treasuries, um, they started appearing on the front page and I started getting more and more attention and, um, and sort of the validation of that attention, I suppose, allowed me to, to start focusing more on what I was making and approach designing and product development in a more deliberate way. Okay. So the shift happened gradually, but it changed from here's this sort of casual Etsy shop to how can I make this um, reliable. Right. And Etsy played a little bit of a role in that by exposing you to this market and giving you a little bit of attention that, as you said, validated the idea and was motivating to you. And so it did play that role at least early on. And I know you had a day job. You were, um, you were working as a nanny. And then um, also you, after that, it sounds like we're working um, in the floral department at a Whole Foods. Um, (laughs) And so um, I I think it's always interesting to hear from people um, about how they transition because now, you know, doing your embroidery is really what sustains, it sounds like can sustain you financially. Um, And you can correct me if I'm wrong about that. But, um, But I wondered if you could sort of tell us about what your days look like back then when you had the day job and were doing the embroidery sort of after hours, um, both as the nanny and, and when you were working at Whole Foods, and then um, what the transition or, or what the plan was for the transition out of, of the day job. Yeah, sure. First, I'd like to say that I'm really a terrible planner. So most of my decisions have come about out of pure necessity and, and sort of have happened very spontaneously. Um, again, when I opened my Etsy shop and started embroidering, I was in this very transitional moment in my life between school and, and figuring things out. I'd say I'm still figuring things out, probably will be forever, but um, I did accept these sort of odd day jobs, working as a nanny and at Whole Foods. And, and I took those, both of those jobs just, just as sort of interim ways to pay bills. Uh, I enjoyed both of them very much. I love kids and, and nannying was a great way to have fun and 
it, I didn't have to take any kind of work home with me. When I left at the end of the day, I could go and, and pursue my own interests, which happened to be embroidery. But they were very long days, especially as my Etsy shop transitioned from very casual to, to a little more popular and I was getting orders and I had these obligations and had to produce the product to ship out to my customers. So my days usually started around, well, I had to wake up around five in the morning and leave my apartment at six to drive to the family's house. And I worked from seven to three and then drove home and would start my embroidery work day around four or five in the afternoon. And depending on the, the volume of orders on any given day, I would sew maybe six or seven hours and then go to bed and do the same thing the next day. So it was a very grueling schedule for the first year when I was, or year and a half when I was working two jobs, essentially. I want to pause things for a moment here for a word from our sponsor, the Meriwether Council. Today's episode is sponsored by Danielle Spurge and the Meriwether Council. Through her work at the Meriwether Council, Danielle teaches makers how to turn their crafty tendencies into profits. Through a variety of resources, including courses, eBooks, and challenges, Danielle helps handmade shop owners make sense of the less glamorous parts of their businesses so they can spend more time doing the work they love. On the Meriwether Council blog, Danielle addresses a range of topics from selling on Etsy to utilizing social media and branding your business for success and recognition. The Meriwether Council has helped hundreds of sellers make more money, grow their influence, and expand their brand presence using tools like Etsy and Shopify. While addressing the unique needs and concerns of a handmade business, Danielle teaches artists and crafters and makers how to build strong foundations that they can grow on. Danielle's teachings are derived from her personal experiences selling crafts online for more than six years. For more information, visit MeriwetherCouncil.com and MeriwetherCouncilBlog.com, where full support for your craft-based entrepreneurship awaits. Thank you so much, Danielle. And now back to my conversation with Sarah. I probably was putting in 70 hours a week between all the different things and and it was exhausting and stressful, but I always kind of had this idea that at the end of the road, I would be able to leave the day jobs and if I just sort of grit my teeth and got through this really difficult time, the end point would be self-employment and a little more freedom and... So it, it felt worth it to me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Looking back, it sounds really terrible. Well, but I um, think it's good for people to hear, um, you know, sort of what it took because it can kind of seem magical, you know, like as though um, it sort of fell down from the sky, perfectly formed as a business um, with a great product that you know exactly what to do, exactly the direction. 
um, and is sustaining you financially. And it's just, I mean, that's almost never the case, but it just really can feel that way, especially when you're, you know, maybe a casual observer of it. Um, so I think it's really good to hear, like, this is what it looked like day to day to build it, you know, to that point. And so, um, was there a goal that you needed to meet, you know, when you were like, okay, if I can get to this, you know, this moment and I meet this goal, then I'll know I can give notice. Um, or was it more like, oh, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I have to leave tomorrow. You know, was it more sudden? Yeah. Um, it was a little bit of both actually. I, I definitely didn't have any kind of financial goal that I was trying to meet beyond, okay, can I pay rent and can I buy food? <laughs> um, obviously those were things that I needed to feel confident that I could do from month to month. But it was, I would say it was much more of an exhaustion decision. Uh, I felt like I was in a comfortable enough financial position about a year and a half into my Etsy shop to decide that it was time to put in notice. At that point, I was working at Whole Foods as a floral specialist, which I really enjoyed. I enjoyed the job. I loved taking care of the plants. I loved working with with clients and customers, arranging flowers and planning events. It was a ton of fun, but I knew that that wasn't my career. That wasn't what I wanted to do forever. And at a certain point, I had to just sort of take the leap of faith and put in notice and leave and trust myself and trust my work that that it it could all kind of come together and that it would work out and it's only really been in the past few months since I launched my monthly pattern program that I've really felt sort of secure in this as a career so let's decision talk, let's and direction talk a little bit. yeah let's talk a little bit about that I was really excited when I saw that and um, you know, I think that people can have a lot of mixed feelings about patterns, um, you know, for a few reasons. Um, first of all, you have this very signature style. Um, and, you know, we can see in our Instagram feed a picture of a Sarah Benning hoop and immediately know it's yours. Um, and so there's a, a fear, and maybe you share this and maybe you don't, you can tell us, but... Um, of, you know, giving it away, right? Like if you give away those instructions, then everyone else will have it. And so, so for some people, there's really a fear that can get in the way of making a pattern because you're basically giving the instructions to it, like almost like a trade secret. Um, and so there's that. And then the other thing that strikes me too is that you mentioned earlier about the embroidery itself that you don't use traditional, often don't use a traditional stitch pattern. So you know, you're not using like a lazy daisy stitch or, you know, a back stitch or, the, you know, kind of the stitches that we're all familiar with if we've dabbled in embroidery, um, like a French knot or something like that, where you're using stitches as paint, essentially, like filling in in this really dense way, um, an illustration that you've drawn in pencil. And so creating a pattern for that could feel a little bit tricky because it's not the traditional way of embroidering. Um, so, when, like, sort of how did you kind of think about patterns? You know, was there a period of time when people were suggesting it and you were like, no, and then there was eventually a yes? Like, take us through your thought process about developing a pattern. 
Yeah, so basically from day one, the first time I ever made and made public an embroidery hoop piece, I started getting requests for patterns. Um, and I, I was definitely reluctant for the reasons you mentioned uh, to, to go with it because it does feel like you're sort of giving something away. And especially as my own sort of style has evolved, it, I feel even more attached to what I'm making. And I don't necessarily or didn't necessarily want to, to be telling everyone else exactly how to do it. However, um, the demand for my finished pieces reached a peak point where it was just impossible for me to even attempt to keep up with it. Um, I was getting so many requests, custom requests, which I, I don't accept anymore, but I used to take on custom projects. And it, it just wasn't very fun for me anymore. I reached a point where, where embroidery was work. And it wasn't enjoyable work. Right. And, and I, think, so, I think that addresses this sort of idea that like you can quit your day job, but no matter what, you're going to have a day job. Do you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, definitely. It is not all um, like bohemian free lifestyle. I still work a lot <laughs> and it's not always pleasant and it's not always organized. And I definitely don't always make the right decision about things. And there are consequences but at the end of the day, I enjoy this much more than other jobs that I've had in the past. Um, but the pattern program has ended up being really liberating in a lot of ways because I do think there's this sort of moment happening right now where, where embroidery and other sort of handmade crafts like natural dyeing and weaving and knitting and crochet, it's all so popular right now. And they are all so accessible materially and, and there's such a rich historical culture surrounding it. So for me, making my brand of embroidery available has been a really wonderful way to share my passion for what I do with the people who, who have been following me and supporting me, some of them for years. And um, it's also allowed me to continue develop me, developing my own artistic work and, and keep pushing my own boundaries for what I can accomplish in a hoop with thread while, while still offering a product to people. Right. So tell um, us, describe a little bit about what the program looks like just for people who haven't had a chance yet to go and check it out. So how did you structure it? You know, sort of what do consumers who, who purchase the program, what do they get and, and what are you offering? Yeah. So my pattern program is available on Etsy. It's the only um, product that I offer now through my Etsy shop. All finished work is sold through my website. Um, but every month, on the first of each month, I release a new embroidery pattern PDF package. So it comes with um, the design that you can print out at home and instructions for how to transfer and stitch the pattern onto your own fabric. It comes with a, a list of suggested materials and um, my own personal tips and tricks for how I 
how I do it. Although I, I pretty strongly emphasize throughout the pattern packet that, you know, it's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be a creative journey. If something I'm suggesting isn't working for you, it's totally okay to take things into your own hand and deviate from my recommendations and deviate from the pattern and just experiment and find what works better for you. I also create um, custom hand illustrated stitch directions, which has been an interesting process because I don't always use traditional traditional techniques. So I've kind of had to educate myself on what those traditional techniques are so that I can more clearly communicate to my subscribers how to achieve the look that I'm going for. I see. So um, you're, you're hand illustrating kind of the diagrams that um, explain visually, give visual instructions on how to yeah. achieve the look. Yeah. And the each month's illustrations are tailored to each month's design. So for example, in April, I released a cactus pattern and the illustrations were sort of specific parts of that cactus design that were then diagramming the stitches necessary to complete the work. Okay. And how, can I ask how many people have signed up for that? I mean, has it been really popular? The response has been completely overwhelming. Um, I was very nervous about releasing this. I, I think also because my Instagram and my plant-based work has become so recognizable, part of what I wanted to do with the pattern program was differentiate it a little bit from my own work. So the pattern program is not all plants. It covers a whole variety of, of subject matter. The first pattern was a crystal mineral pattern, and I felt very nervous <laughs> leading up to, to the release because I wasn't sure if it was something people would be interested in. I've, I've never used embroidery patterns, so I didn't exactly know how to write an embroidery pattern. I also feel like my work is reaching a much broader audience than maybe traditional embroidery uh, brands might be reaching. So I, I anticipated that a lot of people would be super beginners or have no experience embroidering at all. So it was important to me to make, make projects that are achievable. But the, the response has been completely overwhelming. I think I've sold or yeah, over a thousand subscriptions across the different subscription option. So I offer just a single month, just the individual pattern, or you can sign up for three month, six month, and 12 month subscriptions where you receive each new pattern automatically right to your email. Nice. Okay. Um, and two questions come to my mind. So first is, um, you know, I know that there's a segment of um, marketing experts out there who would say, but your uh, customer for your finished work Okay, so let's say the plant, uh, finished embroidery hoops of plants or interiors, that sort of thing. That customer who's been following you on social media and, you know, loves everything that you make and is a super fan is not the same customer as the DIY customer, right? The DIY customer is a crafter, is an embroiderer, is a maker, um, says, oh, I can make that myself. I'm not going to pay for it, that kind of thing. So, but it sounds to me like you built a following among people who are buying finished work or admiring finished work or both 
um, who then did cross over and were the customer for the pattern program. Is that right? Yeah, I think that is right. And I have definitely been told that before, you know, the the customer that's buying the finished work is not necessarily the same customer that's buying the patterns. However, I think that there has been some crossover in both directions. Um, and I, I do regularly hear from followers on Instagram and people reaching out via email or Facebook or Etsy itself that they have never once considered embroidery in their life, not as an activity for themselves or even as an interesting form for for design or decor. And, and for some reason, um, my work is speaking to those people. And so it's, I don't know, it's been totally overwhelming and I'm incredibly grateful and kind just, of just can't believe yeah, I any of wanted, it. <laughs> I wanted to just highlight that, that even though you can read or be advised by marketing experts about something and they can say, no, this is not the same customer, you can't do it this way, really, you can do it that way. Anything is possible. And so you, you, know, you can read that and kind of take it or leave it. Um, but your proof that it, it doesn't, it's not the Bible, you know what I'm saying? Like it's not, yeah. it, it may, it may actually be that there are instances in which that customer is the same customer and a business built one way can transition to a business that offers a different sort of product. Um, so I just wanted to highlight that. And the other thing I wanted to highlight or ask a question about was, um, so you chose to use Etsy as a subscription uh, a place to offer a subscription product. And I, I am assuming that that offers some challenges because as far as I know, Etsy doesn't have a setup to make that easy. Um, so are you entering each person who buys a three-month versus a six-month into a different spreadsheet? I mean, how, that must be the way you're yes. – that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> Is this a manual thing it's here? Definitely, it's definitely a flawed system, which – had I more accurately anticipated the interest level, maybe I would have approached it differently. But now here we are. It's been way more popular than I ever thought possible. Um, and right now it is a manual process. And luckily for me, my fiancé has taken on some of those administrative duties to, to make it possible for me to continue making anything because otherwise my time would be eaten up by, by these other sort of tedious jobs. Um, so right now it's, it's all, you buy something, you buy the subscription on Etsy. The first month for all the subscription levels is available as an instant download. So that's immediately on your computer through your Etsy account. The remaining months are then emailed to you uh, on the first of each month when the new pattern comes out. And those, I am taking, extracting the emails from Etsy, putting them in a spreadsheet, and then sending them out through my email. Okay. And I just think, um, you know, I, I just want to say to Etsy, hey, this would be a really nice thing you could offer. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Because <laughs> um, you're not the only one. Um, you know, I know that, for example, um, and it's, it's, it is embroidery, but it's a different model, drop cloth. I don't know if you know Rebecca Rinquist, mm -hmm. but um, I had her on the podcast uh, not too long ago, and she also offers a subscription club, but she actually is mailing you a pre-printed sampler. So it's a different sort of setup, but... Um, 
but be that as it may, it's very manual because there's not another option, and she's doing that through her, her Etsy shop as well. And, and I know there are other people who are, who are doing something similar. So wouldn't it be nice if... <laughs> yeah, it would. It would be incredible. Yeah. Um, I, I actually chose Etsy rather than my website for the pattern program, though, because I didn't... Um, well, over the past couple of months, my model for how my work is available has changed drastically. Uh, so when I launched my website back in January, I sort of transitioned all the finished work over to the website. I eliminated pre and custom orders. I don't keep a web, uh, mailing or sorry, I don't keep a waiting list. I do keep a mailing list. Um, so my website really serves as this place that you go to buy the finished work through my updates, which happen periodically. I didn't want to fully abandon Etsy, however, because I've been on it for a few years. Uh, It's been really great for me. But I just was racking my brain for how Etsy could benefit my business, even though I'm now driving traffic primarily to my website. And so the pattern program seemed like the sort of the perfect way to, to separate in some ways the two avenues of my work and Etsy makes international electronic sales very easy because they calculate and charge and take care of all of the extra taxes, the value added tax that is required for all digital sales, (laughs) um, which my website isn't set up to do. So, so there were some benefits to going with Etsy that sort of dictated that decision. But okay. yeah, I think that's helpful for people to hear. And I want to talk a little bit about marketing. So you just mentioned that you're driving the sales to your site for the finished goods and um, and also now for the pattern program, even though it's on Etsy. And I want to talk about what that looks like. So I read an interview with you in which you said, um, and I'm quoting here, so making is really only half of what it is to be an artist. The other half is knowing how to get your work out into the world and make people see it. And I think you've just done such a great job of this. And we've talked about your Instagram multiple times already in this interview. You have, and I just checked this morning, 214,000 Instagram followers, which is just astounding. It doesn't surprise me because the quality of your work is so is so beautiful. Um, but I wondered if you could tell us how that happened. Like, how, how did you go from one follower on day one of Instagram when you opened the account to 214 right now? So I would like to preface this with the fact that all of my education is in art making and definitely not in business and not in marketing. So I have had to sort of learn as I go with a lot of those things. Um, luckily, we live in the age of the internet, so there are so many resources out there to to get information about those things. Um, but I actually was really reluctant to join Instagram at first. I felt like it was going to end up being such a time-consuming sort of attention-seeking and grabbing activity, and I just thought it was going to be a really negative experience for me which it's turned out to be really great for my business. And of course, my my page is attention-seeking because that's the purpose of marketing. 
but it's been a lot of fun for me to sort of craft my Instagram persona. I think that's an important thing for people to realize following artists and creative businesses and any business on Instagram is that it, it is a persona. It's crafted. My studio is not always light-filled and beautiful. A lot of times it's a crazy mess with a million unorganized things everywhere. And um, I think the, the secret to Instagram is really consistency and image quality. And those are very easy words to throw out, but I think they, can, they take some work to achieve. My first Instagram posts were very dark. I think the first post I ever put up, I took at night in my studio. So it was really kind of gross lighting and wasn't staged at all, totally candid. Um, and I think my account sat at like 20 followers for maybe two or three months, which was depressing. Instagram shows you when people unfollow you. So it's kind of a hurdle to get over seeing that number drop after you post a picture. Right. You go from, when you go from 20 to 19, it does really hurt. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So Um, but you know, I tried to approach that kind of thing in a more positive way. So it's like, okay, I posted this sort of dark, fuzzy picture of something I'm interested in, maybe from my life, but doesn't necessarily relate to what I'm making. And people unfollowed me. All right, lesson learned. I don't post that kind of picture again. Um, and on the flip side, I post a if I posted a picture on a white background, which is something I use, it's not suitable for all brands, I guess, but I like the white background. Um, you know, with my cup of coffee, with my my perfectly placed hand and some pretty scissors, and that picture, instead of losing followers, I gain 10 more followers. All right, second lesson learned, that's a good direction to go. So I think in the beginning, it's really just paying attention to the kind of engagement your photos are eliciting from people on Instagram, whether it's followers or comments or, or your pictures being shared. Um, it was definitely a learning process for me. And luckily, it's something I enjoy. I enjoy setting up my pictures and taking them. And, and I do edit my photos for the most part on Instagram. Um, if those aren't things that you enjoy, I don't know that Instagram is the most beneficial tool for you. And do you batch these? So are you sitting on a, on a Monday and taking 12 and then editing 12 and then pulling on those 12 throughout the week? Or are you, you know, sitting on a Thursday morning and being like, Oh, I haven't posted anything on Instagram. Let's quickly set up a photo. Yeah, it's definitely some of both. When I'm organized, I do take pictures sort of in batches. It's also Again, it comes down to organization, but because embroidery is so slow and time-consuming, it's not like I have new finished pieces every single day. So I have to kind of decide, all right, am I going to take some some close-ups or or some pictures of process or share something from my sketchbook? Um, And if I'm not kind of thinking ahead, I do run into like, oh, no, I've shared this piece kind of like three or four times in the past couple of weeks. I don't want to share it again, but I don't have any other content. Um, so I do, I do take batches. 
and sort of try to space them out. Sometimes I get too excited about what I'm working on and just post them in groups and regret it later usually. But but I, I don't know. I, I try to post at least once a day. Okay. And I think there's something else, one other question about Instagram before we move on from that topic. But one thing that people will often say is, okay, well, that's all well and good. You know, like you've got tons of followers. That's great. Um, you're enjoying it. That's great. All of that stuff is great. But is it actually leading to sales? You know what I'm saying? So people can say, well, social media, mm-hmm. wonderful, wonderful. But like, how does that even build a business? And so could you just speak a little bit about the connection that you've seen? Yeah. So one tool on Instagram that I use a lot is the link in your profile. So you can link to your Etsy shop or a website or a blog or an interview or anything. Um, And I change my link frequently depending on what I'm talking about in the post. So if I'm talking about my pattern program, my link is directly to my Etsy shop. People that are interested, it's one click away and then they're there. The product is in front of them. They can buy it or not, but but they're in that space. Um, and I know for a fact, because Etsy has those handy stats where you can see what traffic you're getting and where it's coming from, um, post, or days that my Instagram link is to my Etsy shop, my traffic is three to four times as high as when the link in my Instagram is to something else, like my website. So I I can make the correlation between the Instagram link driving traffic directly to Etsy and on those days my Etsy sales are much higher than days that I'm not actively promoting Etsy through Instagram. Right. And and do you I don't I don't think you blog. Do you blog? I don't. It's one of my it's always been on my to-do list. My to-do list is a million things long. Um, one of the things I've, I've started doing over the past couple months on Instagram is every Sunday I post someone else's work. I have a series called craft with conscience, which is, which came out of my need to discuss the issues surrounding inspiration versus infringement and how artists navigate this kind of tricky arena of, hey, I saw that thing that I really like and I want to make something like it, but is that okay? And if, and, and is that hurting someone or, or how is that impacting the art community? So I would love to start blogging about those issues as well. In addition to sharing other artists work and sort of bringing these topics to light, because I think it can be an uncomfortable thing to talk about, but, um, I don't blog right now. Hopefully in the future. Right. So, so a few things there. One is that, you know, you're, you're a person who has shown that it's possible to build a business without a blog. And I think that there are, are, again, marketing experts out there who will tell you, you have to have a blog. Everything revolves around the blog. If you don't have a blog, you can't do anything. You can't build a business. Um, And again, that is not always the case. And I know, I, I know other businesses like, you know, that have built uh, along a similar model to yours, which is to say Etsy, um, a website, 
you know, a static website. It's static in that it's not a blog, but it's got updated products, you know, um, and, mm-hmm. and Instagram, for example, and that, that combination. And as you said, you do have a newsletter, um, which I get, um, but it's not like super frequent. Um, and now I, it's once a month. Right. Maybe. Right. And so, and so that combination has led to success for you. And there are just a lot of ways to do this. And if, although it sounds like you've got a lot of ideas for blog content, there are people out there who just the idea of sitting down to write a blog is just the last thing that they want to do and spend time on. Um, and then therefore feel like, well, then I can't have a creative business. And that is not true. So yeah, I, I don't think that's true at all. I think, honestly, I think if you are willing to put in the time and sort of take on some unglamorous aspects of, of running a creative business, anybody can do it. And I, I think it, obviously you have to have a good product, but I think having a good product comes out of your own passion and enthusiasm for that product. And that translates across social media. It, it translates into the product itself and it, and it comes across to your, to your eventual customers that you are making something you really believe in, you really love it. And, and I think that that's enough to get started. Yeah, I agree. And let's go back to that product um, just as we get toward um, toward the end and, and toward your recommendations, which I want to make sure we get to. But um, that product is embroidery. And I know, you know, embroidery, it's got kind of a bad reputation, you know, like it's kind of stodgy. You know, you can think about these visions of ladies like in a parlor stitching these samplers yeah. and, and, and the stitches have to be perfect or you have to take them out again, you know, like this perfection and, and these stitch patterns that you absolutely have to follow. And, and I feel like there's really been a reinvention of embroidery right now. And you referred to it earlier with natural dyeing and weaving and some of these macrame and some of these other art forms that are sort of coming back and being reinterpreted. Um, and so I just wanted to hear your thoughts about sort of the potential of embroidery and where you see yourself fitting into the tradition of embroidery. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing because I don't necessarily, I mean, I know I use the, the word embroidery all the time. It's how I describe my work. It is what it is. But I don't think of my work necessarily as coming out of the embroidery tradition. I think it's much more in line with drawing and illustration sort of histories and patterns. And, um, and it just happens to be made out of thread on fabric in an embroidery hoop. But I think that as with anything, like it's just kind of time to let those traditions go a little bit. And, and they, there are so many updated versions and there are so many really, um, great embroidery artists out there right now doing all kinds of different work. It's such a flexible material, despite this reputation for being very rigid and rule-based and kind of frumpy. Um, I think the most common comment I get at craft fairs is just like, oh, my grandma does this. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) But I think it's a great process. It's very relaxing and meditative. And and the, the sort of potential for the image is endless, just like with painting or drawing or illustrating or any other technique. 
Right. Yeah, I think that that's wonderful, and it's great to hear it coming from you. It's definitely the way that I approach sewing, which can also be seen as very rule-based and very rigid, that if you don't sew it right and you don't know how to put in a perfect dart, then you can't do this. And I totally don't see it that way at all. I see, I teach people to sew and use a sewing machine um, all the time where I live locally, and I really just see the machine as a tool. You know, this is a tool to open up a new creative avenue for you. And that's how I see it. That's all it is. It is just a tool. And in the same way, right, embroidery thread or floss and a hoop and some fabric, it's just a a means to an end. And it's completely wide open despite what we've maybe been told in the past about the rules that have to be followed. Yeah, Definitely. I think that's a great, a very freeing thing to hear and to feel. So, um, all right. So I do want to get to your recommendations because you've got some really good ones. And um, the first one I would love for you to talk about is Audible, which is um, audiobooks. And I love audio as well. I mean, hey, I create a podcast, so obviously I love audio. But <laughs> can you um, tell us about sort of how you use Audible um, and kind of in your day-to-day life? Yeah, I use Audible all the time. Um, It started, actually, I used to have other podcasts or Netflix or just something on while I'm in the studio, you know, working from home as a one-person business. I spend hours and hours alone, so it's kind of nice to have some sound in the room. Um, But here in Spain, my apartment has... Semi-unreliable internet. So streaming podcasts or streaming TV shows wasn't always an option. Um, And Audible ended up being a really great way to download content and and have it for when the internet goes off. (laughs) Um, So I started with a free trial. I, I don't know. I used some promotion code from a podcast. A lot of them offer it and have listened to so many books this year. And it's, it's great because I often don't have time to sit and, and read, or I don't make time to sit and read a book just for the sake of reading. So it's nice to still kind of have access to, to stories and not feel guilty about taking time away from working. Um, so I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. I usually like, buy the extra credits because I consume the books so fast. <laughs> yes, I have a subscription and um, and I use all my credits and I, I love it as well. And it's also great when you have kids um, and car trips. <laughs> so we've listened yeah. to many great books that our whole family has enjoyed, even though they are written for children. You know, everyone can enjoy The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's just a yeah. good book. So, and it helps uh, pass the time. And even if it's not a long car trip, we'll um, break it up. So we're just driving, you know, to Hebrew school and driving to soccer practice and stuff. And so it's just like we wait to get in the car to hear that and, and everybody looks forward to it. So it's a good way to pass the time for that as well. Um, okay. And then you wanted to talk about self-care um, and this separation between um, work and life, um, which I struggle with a lot. And um, and so it's, it's good to hear from somebody else who, who also struggles with it. And, and so tell us what you do to kind of separate that out and take care of you. Yeah, it's always sort of an elusive balance between working and not working, especially having a home studio and loving what I do. Sometimes it's hard to kind of turn that off. And living here in Menorca has been 
a really great step towards that. The Spanish culture in general, I think, is much more laid back than the U.S. So the, the whole attitude around, around working and feeling like you need to be working all the time is very different. And it's much more like, well, you enjoy it, so that's nice, but you might also enjoy going to the beach, so do that. And sort of the weight of those two things can sometimes be equal. And so it's been a great um, experience kind of trying to adapt to some of that, that more relaxed and enjoyment-based lifestyle rather than I need to work all the time because I have to always be growing and always be getting better and always sort of improving frantically. Yeah. And always having to be saying on social media how busy I am. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so it's, it's kind of been nice and I am starting to feel a little bit more comfortable making those choices. Like, okay, here's my to-do list. It's 10 items long. You know, maybe I can, I can do five of them and then take a couple hours to go walk along the beach or take a couple hours to go have coffee at a cafe and just people watch and relax or spend time um, with friends or have an extended dinner or just anything, anything that isn't working. Like it's okay to leave that list until tomorrow because let's be real, it's embroidery. The world won't end if I don't meet this exact deadline, which is self-imposed anyway. So it really, it's okay to to sort of take a break. Absolutely. I think that's a great, actually a really great um, note to end on. So Sarah, thank you so much for, um, for taking the time to be on the Walshing Apps podcast. It was just wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. And where should people go to check out your work? Just if they haven't seen it yet or they just want to check in with you or send you a message. Yeah. Um, my website is sarahkbenning.com. And I have a contact page. You can always send me an email directly through the website. Or you can follow me on Instagram at Sarah K. Benning. And that's B-E-N-N-I-N-G. Yep. Okay, great. Perfect. So uh, thank you so much. And you've been listening to the While She Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, whilesheknaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. And a big thank you to today's show sponsor, the Merriweather Council. Today's episode is sponsored by the Merriweather Council, where makers learn that gainful self-employment through craft can be a reality and how to make it happen in their own lives. Visit merriweathercouncil.com for more information. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.